Hi, welcome to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of CJR. This week, we start with the two sides of using Twitter to promote your journalism. On the one hand, it can be a great megaphone. On the other, it can get you into some serious trouble. We'll walk through some recent examples this week. Next, next up, a history of fake news from Thomas Jefferson to 2016. And then we'll end with an update on post-election journalistic job shuffling and what that tells us about how the Trump White House is likely to be covered. Guiding us through all this this week, Dave Uberti, CJR staff writer and senior Delacorte fellow. Hello, David. And that was Kyle Pope, our editor and publisher, not a late-night DJ. Uh, I'm happy to be back here in the pod this week. I was in Michigan last week getting back in touch with my Midwestern roots and the real America. But we're here back on the kicker to discuss a few of those topics, as Kyle mentioned. And I want to welcome a couple of my colleagues onto the pod again. We have a Tau editor, Noska Renner. Noska, thanks for joining us again. Pleasure to be here. And then we also have Pete Vernon. He's a Delacorte Fellow and CJR's Young Go Hard in Residence. Pete, what's up? Good to have you back, Dave. <laughs> Happy to be back. So the first thing we wanted to talk about is, uh, you know, a newsier topic that broke yesterday, which was Politico severs ties with a writer after a vulgar Trump tweet. I'm reading from a pointer.org report. Here's a lead. Politico has terminated his contract with magazine writer Julia Yaffe after she sent a tweet that referenced a possible incestuous relationship between President-elect Donald Trump and his daughter Ivanka. And now here I'm reading from Politico's internal memo explaining the move to its staff. Politico journalists are representing its, this publication at all times and on all platforms and must present themselves accordingly. Gratuitous opinion has no place anywhere at any time not only on your Facebook feed, your Twitter feed, or any place else. It has absolutely zero value for our readers and should have zero place in our work. This is a difficult territory, obviously, because if you're like me, you're on Twitter for most of the day, at least periodically checking it. And it seems to be sort of a greater topic of discussion going forward. This has been in the news uh, quite a bit recently, right, Pete? Yeah, this, uh, I think really came to the nation's attention uh, in a big way when Liz Spade, the New York Times public editor and our former boss here at CJR, went on Fox News on Tucker Carlson's new show. And he somewhat ambushed her with a set of tweets from New York Times reporters, from you know hard news reporters, not opinion writers, that were all in some way negative towards Donald Trump. Um, and Carlson asked Liz if she felt like this was overstepping the bounds, if these hard news reporters were casting too much opinion into their tweets, and if readers should therefore not take their work at face value. Liz's response uh, generated some criticism from within the Times and from other journalists because she basically said, oh, I think it's outrageous. Uh, I think there should be some sort of punishment or critique of those writers. Um, it was a little bit unfair because some of the tweets were pretty innocuous and others, there was one by Liam Stack who was simply retweeting an Atlantic title. So Tucker Carlson, as Tucker Carlson is wont to do, was playing a little fast and loose with some of his questions. Um, but it does bring up a, a good set of questions. is just how far should writers go, reporters go, in their Twitter presence. Right. And I mean, like, I think, you know, this is difficult terrain, as I said, because Twitter sort of incentivizes you to be snarky, to make jokes, to be funny and a little bit edgy, more edgy than I think most reporters would be willing to do when they're publishing a story in a newspaper, when they're going on air to say something. So like, on one hand, you have editors and publications and whatnot who want their reporters on Twitter and, and for lack of a better term, to build up a personal brand, hashtag brand. 
But on the other hand, you don't want them to go so far as to sort of reduce your institutional credibility by sort of, you know, saying what you actually think. So, I mean, Nasco, what do you think about this, this general sort of, you know, push and pull between having a Twitter presence and not going over the edge? Yeah, I mean, I think this has been an issue for the entire election. The New York Times and BuzzFeed both sent memos to their staff writers warning them to be less biased on Twitter. I think there's something to be pulled apart here in the difference between bias or opinion and entertainment value. Sure. And I mean, I sympathize with both sides of the argument. I think that news organizations, if they want their writers um, and editors to be on Twitter, they need to really make clear the guidelines. Some organizations don't ha have guidelines and some don't. I, I'm not sure about Politico. And they really need to support what journalists are doing on Twitter in a, in a more active way. I think what keeps happening is a journalist fires off one tweet and then, you know, either Politico, shoot, like Yaffe was already on the way out. Um, and so they're just making an example of her for everybody else. Right. In other cases, I'm sure that it's, you know, really messed with people's careers. And it's a really harmful thing about the Internet that one thing can derail your entire career. Right. I think news organizations need to be cognizant of like how they're putting people in that position and right. how they can support them. Right. Just to add a little bit of context regarding Politico, in the past they have put out uh, you know, internal memos basically warning their, their reporters to you know, say, hey, tap the brakes a bit, like you're going a little bit over the line with how much you're you know, adding opinion or snark or what have you into your tweets. It, it, is a, it is tough terrain. I mean, you know, I've sort of personally grappled with this a couple of times. You know, what, what is over the line and, and what, what's a joke and what's going to be taken out of context? Yeah, and I think we've talked about this before. Also, the amount that being on Twitter exposes you not to just to the scrutiny of your own news organization and other journalists, but to the world and how that's actually quite an intimate relationship. And the other half of this is that it's hard to be on Twitter and it's it's hard to maintain a voice all the time. Nobody's editing you and sometimes the public gets really angry at you and sends you abusive stuff. The fact that journalists also have to undergo sort of this emotional labor by being on Twitter is another thing that I think news organizations have yet to address in a real way. The public expectation is an interesting part of this too because obviously this this tweet flew around all forms of Twitter yesterday and there were many people tweeting to the Atlantic saying are you going to act as Politico did and you know cancel your contract with Yaffe um, because to have such a biased reporter obviously you're gonna destroy your credibility. I guess part of my question is what do people Actually, when you step back from the, the Twitter machine and, and the anger that just flows like wine through there, uh, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think your writers, the people you read, are like? Like, everybody has opinions, right? We hold up Ron, Walter Cronkite as kind of this, the newsman who, if he says it, it's the truth. Walter Cronkite, in his later right. life, once he left the booth, made it very clear with, that his political leanings lay far to the left of the character he played on television. Right. Um, I, yeah, and I think sort of the, the broader question here and what Liz Spade was addressing on Fox News as well is that, like, it is a little bit odd for us to actually be able to see on a screen, like, what reporters actually think about and the way they actually talk in between each other. I'm sure there are colleagues in many newsrooms who have made off-color jokes to one another, uh, whether that's about a subject that they're covering or sort of a broader topic in the news. To actually have that come up in, in a tweet 
which is something that journalists would feel comfortable saying to each other. It comes off a little bit differently when, you know, the masses can kind of like zoom in on that and take that out of context. Right. Or and we've seen people's careers ruined by an off-color comment or um, something kind of that they said without an editor before in, of like Howard Cosell on Monday Night Football. Right. Um, there's just, as Noska said, there's this constant pressure and responsibility on some level to be online, to engage with your readership. And it creates so many more op opportunities for things to go wrong. It's kind of surprising in some ways it doesn't happen more often. I'm generally against firing people for a single tweet uh, or for that matter evaluating the content of someone's character or journalism off of a single tweet or a series of tweets. But, I mean, having said that, I think this is sort of a big problem. And if, if the point of contact between an audience and a journalist is on Twitter, then I think it is important that you think twice, you know, before you hit that send button. That's the journalist's job. Always think twice. <laughs> I think that this also ties into the speed of the news cycle, not just in terms of having to fire off tweets every 20 minutes, but in terms of wanting to differentiate yourself as a journalist from other journalists. And right. now that basically everybody gets the same information at the same time, there's no longer like as much of the New York Times scooped this or like BuzzFeed reported that. It's more like everybody basically gets the same information and then the value that goes into it is in the analysis. And so or the jokes. Or the jokes and and journalists are being like slowly coaxed out of the straight reporting because straight reporting can be done pretty much across the nation simultaneously. If you want to differentiate yourself as a journalist, you're not going to do that by simply getting information. You need to differentiate yourself in terms of your voice and your personal brand. Right. Unless you're doing like deep investigative reporting, news is fairly cheap. As you said, the, the basic news, whether it's a picture of the Trump children in the meeting with uh, tech executives yesterday or the release of information that Ivanka would be occupying the first lady's office, everybody has that at the same time. So why should I read one reporter over another? Oftentimes it is because one has a funnier quote tweet at the top of the story. I, I got to say that I am one of these people, and this has happened to me a couple of times, happened to me, I've done this a couple of times, where I've read a story or a piece of information. And made an incest joke? <laughs> Never made an incest joke. Try to think of a good joke or snarky comment. Scrolled through Twitter a little while, saw all the better snarky comments and jokes already being taken, decided not to tweet at all. Right. I mean, it's, it's a question of getting there first, getting there funnier or more insightfully, if we're, I guess, being generous. But yeah, analysis has kind of taken precedence over breaking news for a lot of journalists who are not I doing the investigative I will say, I actually think that's a good thing. I think it's really interesting that journalists have, like, most of the work doesn't happen in actually breaking the news anymore. Just because then there's just more journalistic energy toward doing other things. It, but maybe, unfortunately, more of their energy is going toward uh, Twitter than toward digging deeper. Yeah, all of my joke-making energy is going there. Yes. <laughs> Wait, we, one more we, thing. Okay. What's the verdict? Do you guys think you spend... Are, are you guys happy with the amount of time that you spend on Twitter? Do you am, want to spend less? Am I happy with it? Mm -hmm. I think uh, I use Twitter in perpetual self-loathing. But yeah, no, I enjoy it. Um, I think it's a good, you know, if you are writing or trying to understand the media industry better, I think Twitter is a good spot to hang out, mm -hmm. um, to see what journalists are actually talking about and actually saying to each other. Pete? I, I can quit any time. <laughs> Doubt it. <laughs>
Do they have like a Nicorette for Twitter use? I know, seriously, <laughs> I need to wean myself off. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try for that, delete the Twitter app from your phone over the, uh, the week that we have between Christmas and New Year's wow. and uh, see how long I last. Well, we'll uh, return to that on our first 2017 episode of The Kicker. I'll give you an update. Pete will be shaking here in the studio. All right, moving on to our next topic, fake news, back again. We can't escape it. I wrote a story for CJR, which was published today. You can find it on CJR.org, basically trying to take a look at sort of the historical underpinnings of this idea of fake news. I think over the course of the last month or so, we've been having these discussions about how big this problem is. A lot of sort of the graybeards in journalism have said that fake news is not new. This has always been a part of our media diet, et cetera, et cetera. So I try to, you know, go and search a little bit of, you know, exactly what the problem was decades or centuries ago, how people then responded to it, and if and how the problem is different now. And basically what I found is that this idea of fake news or, you know, bad information or opinion blending into character assassination has really, really been a fixture of American media for the last 250 years or so. In 1807, sitting President Thomas Jefferson, he said, quote, it is a melancholy truth that a suppression of the press could not more completely deprive the nation of its benefits than is done by its abandoned prostitution to falsehood. Nothing can now be believed which is seen in a newspaper. Truth itself becomes suspicious by being put into that polluted vehicle. So certainly then the situation was a little bit different. Publications were, were often sponsored by, you know, partisan factions or government printing contracts. But even as, you know, media developed more commercially minded business models, fake news, you know, and often sort of s sensationalized stories became a fixture in order to, you know, most of the time boost circulation. In 1835, for example, the New York Sun wrote a series of articles saying that uh, scientists had discovered life on the moon. Edgar Allan Poe, writing at the time, basically criticized it for having low production value. He said that not one person in ten discredited this fake news story. And he added, quote, Immediately upon completion of the moon story, I wrote an examination of its claims to credit, showing distinctly its fictitious character, but was astonished at finding that I could obtain few listeners. So really eager were all to be deceived. Can I just ask a question? Sure. I find this really interesting because it seems like you're saying that the motivation for this type of mendacious story was circulation and money, but it seems like now, I'm thinking in particular about fake news on Facebook, and I'm wondering how much do you think it really is about money and how much do you think it is about either putting forth a different narrative about what's going on or just straight up confusing the narrative that's being put forth. Right. I mean, I think that's sort of the question that I try to grapple with in this piece, right? And I think the answer is that, you know, media, very broadly speaking, is moving into sort of a new era that we, we really need to understand. So the first era of American media had sort of partisan-backed, a lot of political mudslinging. Newspapers weren't created to make money. Then from about 1850 to 1950, 1970 or so, they became these commercial powerhouses. Now we are moving into an era where media can't really make a lot of money, and then that, coupled with the fact that we have hyper-partisanship in our political arena, just really, really opens the door for like a different sort of public mistrust, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a combination of factors that are sort of going into people's production of fake news. So I think we're moving backwards in time in some senses where people do this a, for, you know, drawing on Google AdSense or Facebook's ad, you know, revenue. Like the Macedonian teenagers who maybe made $60,000. <laughs> like the Macedonian teenagers, <laughs> exactly. But also just for straight up, 
we are doing this to seek political ends. We want to either confuse people or spread rumor, innuendo, falsehood about Hillary Clinton, for example. Right. There's a difference, even historically, between fake news uh, that trumpets the escape of animals from Central Park, which is in your story, and something like Remember the Maine, the blowing up of a U.S. Navy ship in uh, the harbor of, harbor of Havana, which uh, launched the Spanish-American War, right? right? Like one of those had a very political purpose. One of them was pure entertainment. Part of our confusion now comes from this idea that politics is entertainment. It does draw a, lot, a huge audience and a lot of clicks, and people have their teams that they cheer for. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know how much that plays into the spread of fake news, but in talking about what's different, I think one of them is you're quoting from newspapers, uh, or I guess going back to Jefferson, just right. a letter. Pamphlets. Um, yeah, pamphlets, <laughs> right? Like we're talking about ink, printing presses. Right. Now Couriers. we have yeah, <laughs> right. people actually having to carry this stuff. But now we have these distribution platforms that make it easier for the actual news story to, or fake news story, to fly around, to show up on people's phones and computers in a way that just wasn't possible, it had to be word of mouth in the right. past. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess one of, the, one of the difficulties I had when I was trying to think about that question is, so I was thinking about the example where the newspaper printed that animals had escaped from the Central Park Zoo, and there was pandemonium in New York City. So how different or not different is people reading that in 1850 or so and telling all of their real-life social networks compared to that circulating on Facebook. I mean, I thought obviously Facebook has a much broader reach. It could travel around the world faster. But in terms of like sort of concentrated real-life impact of a fake news story, I think you could arguably, arguably say that people just passing those things around by word of mouth could have a greater you know, effect. But I'm curious what your guys' thoughts on that are. Sorry, that, that the scale of Facebook sort of changes the right. game? Right. So, you know, how, you know like BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed says that they've done a lot of great reporting on this, and they, they've said X, Y, and Z fake news stories have been engaged with a million times on Facebook. Do we even know where those people are? Are they all Americans? Are they engaging with it because they think it's real or because they think it's a joke? I think it's just extremely difficult to quantify uh, like absent a yeah. crazy person going into a DC pizza parlor, it's difficult to quantify sort of exactly the you know, impact, the real, the real about, life yeah. impact of of this. I'm not sure. I, I think it's both. I think we've never seen something of this scale before, and I think ex it's has accelerated beyond how we think about things. Right. Um, but these things always ebb and flow. Like I, uh, one of the things that I really like about your piece is that it comes back to this issue of like waning public trust, public trust in the media, opening up the space for this to happen. You know, I'm sure, and that's a backlash against the press, and there will be another backlash of trust, it, and that's just how things go. Well, and what <laughs> we're really asking here, right, like we're, we're talking about this because of the election. What we're really asking with this question, with the Russian hacking question, is did the news and the way journalists covered the news, or the existence of fake news, impact the election. And in that sense, like, it does matter way more and is way more important right. than, like, a bunch of New Yorkers being scared about lions in Fifth Avenue. <laughs> um, and, like, that's the question right. we're actually talking sure. about. And in a similar sense to what you just said, we don't know the answer. Right. And I, I mean, I also think that, like, we are getting, as journalists, too far into sort of the semantics at this, of this. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, 
do people really care of the difference between fake news as we define it and bad reporting? I mean, we, or we do... Hyper-partisan or hyperpartisan Or hyperpartisan uh, opinion journalism. I mean, we do care about that, and it's important to make those distinctions when we talk about the media, but I'm, I'm talking about sort of like the end product that reaches people. Is there like a actionable difference between those things? Does it actually matter? You can make the argument that, you know, the New York Times uh, writing about weapons of mass destruction was fake news. Uh, that was just terribly misreported. I guess, I guess the one thing that I think is really different now is that in these small cases of life on the moon, it, it didn't represent, as it does now, a polarization among populations in the U.S. Like when people read about the moon hoax, everybody still knew what they thought before that and they knew what they thought after that. And now the fake news now is playing on people's desires to believe certain things over believing other things. And it's, I feel like it's creating much more of a rift. People talk about like reality, are people reality based or not? <laughs> I think that's probably a really unfair characterization, but, but there is something there in terms of two different populations have really different ways of narrativizing globalization. Well, I think this idea of the, the two people having kind of confirmation bias is what you're talking about, right? Is this idea that people on the left want to believe one thing and are more susceptible to a, a certain type of hoax and people on the right, an, a, another type of hoax. But this idea of what fake news is, I think it's important not to lose sense of a strict definition of that because while a moon landing in the 19th century or or life on the moon in the 19th century, um, or Pizzagate, those are, are fake news. Those are stories completely fabricated whole cloth. Something like the New York Times reporting on weapons of mass destruction, it was wrong. It was The reporting turned out to be wrong, but that was not fake news in the strict right. definition. I Certainly. think it's important to keep those definitions yeah. as opposed to like hyperpartisan opinion journalism is one thing. Right. Bad reporting is another thing, and fake news is in a whole different bucket and I, I think we've already seen people blending yeah. those definitions. Pe people certainly do that for their own political ends. But I, I mean, I, I would argue that sort of if, if we're talking about misreporting versus fake news, like there's one of those things that journalists can deal with. Right. We don't have any strategy for dealing with fake news. Well, it's not even in our purview in right. some way. Right. It's not under control. There's going to be Macedonian teenagers who want to earn extra money by, you know, gaming Facebook. Which is why Facebook <laughs> needs to step up. <laughs> right. So Nausicaa edited a piece today on our site. Um, which had a little bit of news about Facebook. Facebook announced uh, some new steps that they're taking regarding fake news. What did they? What was sort of the gist of that, Nasca? So Facebook today announced that they're partnering with um, Snopes.com and and FactCheck.org um, to basically um, set up a system of moderation for um, for potentially fake news. So moderation almost across the board works by user flagging so if you're scrolling through Facebook and you see a piece of content that you suspect is false you can flag it and then it will be up to fact check and Snopes to basically determine if that article is in the clear or if it remains dubious so it's not saying whether things are true or false it's just giving users a heads up about whether or not something might be false so then after it goes through this uh, through the moderation system, a flag will pop up on stories that are potentially false. It will ask you before you share something if you still want to share it, even though there's potentially false information involved. Wait, just to be clear. Yes. It's factcheck.org and Snopes that are doing the moderating, correct? Yes, it is. So Facebook's role in this is... So Facebook's role in this is, um, I mean... 
they're keeping community builder. Yes, <laughs> they're they're taking great lengths to preserve their own alienation from this topic. I think I think there's it's no mistake that they are not themselves involved in the verification. And in fact, what's being reported is that they are not paying either organization to be determined how effective that will be when Snopes and FactCheck start getting millions of links that they then have to verify. I mean, I think they have good systems for doing this in an automated way. It's the future of fake news business models. Yes. <laughs> but so basically, Facebook is punting on their responsibility and saying, we're going to let you other organizations in the door, but we're not going to invest and we're not going to commit our resources to this? It, it appears that way. Yes, Pete. <laughs> 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 One of the real problems with Facebook is that anything that they do needs to be scalable. I think that they're really trying to dip their toes into this question. I mean, they're hiring ahead of news partnerships. That'll be an interesting job. Whoever they pick for that will be yes. an interesting Requires sure. 20 years of experience. <laughs> Pre-Facebook. Yeah. Yes, very pre-Facebook and also uh, somebody with a lot of connections and a lot of newsroom experience, not some young whippersnapper. I, th I think one thing that somebody pointed out to me yesterday is if you come across a story that you want to share and then you click share and it says this story may be false, I know for one thing, like, I'm just not going to share that story. Like, I don't think I will do the extra work if something is flagged to go back and check and see what I actually think right. of it. Right, yeah. Um, and I think even that barrier toward sharing is going to turn into something that people end up trusting what Facebook says is true over what they, over their, over their judgment about it. And that, that's a really dangerous space to be in. Yeah, I mean, if I was on... Uh, if I was the type of person who was inclined to share emotional tearjerker stories on Facebook and saw the Don't story... Don't lie to us, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> and saw the story, uh, where is it from, Tennessee, about the kid who died Santa in Santa's Claus's arms. arms. Yeah. And then Snopes, so who's sad. going to be so sad and maybe not true. Because <laughs> Snopes went and investigated and said, we can't verify any of this. The newspaper went back and tried to connect with the, the hospital or the kid's family. Right. So if... I mean, that's a story that went viral this week, that if this system works right, Snopes checks out, and then anybody else trying to share this and in the interest of trying some holiday tears, all of a sudden, that becomes a, a barrier to sharing that, that, right. hey, this might not be true. All I want for Christmas is more real news. So sweet. All right, welcome back for our final round. We're going to do a lightning round looking at some of the job moves uh, post-election. Pete, along with another Delacorte fellow, Carlette Spike, in the office, they've been compiling sort of a working list you can find on our website of the biggest names and, in, in job moves. We have a couple of dozen people on the list so far. Pete, who are some of the biggest names that you've seen moving? Where are they going? And what are sort of like the major questions or storylines that you're curious about from the, those uh, moves going forward? I mean, obviously, this is a, a time in the post-election month or so uh, where people generally make a lot of moves. Um, some of the people that have been really successful during the campaign get tapped by bigger organizations. Others just make a move because it seems like a natural time. So one of the biggest names is Lydia Paul Green from the New York Times, who is headed to become the editor-in-chief of Huffington Post, yeah, which huge. a lot of us in the journalism community are pretty excited about because I think there's a lot of Lydia Paul Green fans out there. 
Uh, a lot of Lily or Paul Green fans, and I think there was a lot of you know questions raised once Ariana Huffington left of, of what exactly was going to happen to the Huffington Post. Right. So so Lily Paul Green Paul Green has a good pedigree. So very curious to see what she'll be doing going forward there. Other kind of uh, publication based moves, um, BuzzFeed, which has really become a major player in the news industry, which basically got raided. Uh, they earlier before the election even happened, CNN swooped in and took Andrew Kaczynski and his K file team, who had been involved in digging up some of the the biggest audio yeah. and video recordings. Seminal work this uh, cycle, right? Uh, and then in the post uh, post election period, um, they lost McKay Coppins to the Atlantic, uh, who was one of their major feature writers. Uh, him going to the Atlantic brings up another uh, big player in this season which is, uh, who is Jeffrey Goldberg, the new editor-in-chief there, who, in addition to having already on staff writers like ta Coates and Adam Sewer, has gone out uh, on a buying spree and added McKay Coppins, Rosie Gray, Franklin Ford, the former editor of The New Republic, and the previous mentioned Julia Joffe. So I think what they do, uh, kind of from the magazine angle, is going to be really interesting. Um, and then, of course, there's always the New York Times, which basically has its pick of newspaper writers to, to snap up from other places. Um, they, right after the election, grabbed Sopan Deb, who uh, was the CBS News embed with the Trump campaign, basically live-tweeted that entire 18-month uh, show um, and did great work for them. And then they just last week brought over Glenn Thrush from Politico. Uh, right. I mean, they've, they've sort of been going that direction for a while. Glenn Thrush has been, I would say his career tracks very closely with sort of the evolution of Politico from this, you know, spitfire blog-based site to quick analysis to now magazine feature writing. He's obviously a huge name going to the New York Times. Uh, now the New York Times politics desk is basically centered around four of perhaps the five biggest names from the first generation of Politico. So seeing how sort of those styles mel meld together uh, is, is going to be one of the, the really interesting things that I am, I'm curious to learn more about going forward. I also just wanted to take this opportunity to reassure our readers and our listeners that their beloved CJR staff are not going anywhere. <laughs> we are not getting raided, no, because we have too many Nobody wants us. We have too many <laughs> podcasts to record. Uh, but with that, no, I think we will call it a wrap. Uh, I want to thank my colleagues here once again uh, for their diligent work. Uh, Pete Vernon, thanks for being on the show again. Thanks for having me. And Nasca Renner. As always, thank you. I'm David Berti. I'm a staff writer for Columbia Journalism Review and host of The Kicker. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud, and please leave us a comment. I will love you forever. Um, I'd also like to point you in the direction of our memberships. We were formerly a subscription-based product, CJR, and now we are at a membership model. Um, support good journalism is 50 bucks a year. You get print issues, you get a weekly newsletter written by yours truly, and some additional special features from our editor and publisher, Kyle Pope, and other people in the newsroom. So head to CJR.org. You will see it on the homepage. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week.